I'm okay, folks. We're gonna get started. We're running a couple of minutes late, but we got the um, thing there. Just a couple of announcements. There's some articles at the back. If you're interested, stop afterwards and help yourself to whatever you want. Um, we're meeting next week, and then the following week is the Sunday after Thanksgiving. We will not be meeting, and then the last, our last session will be December 2nd. So we've asked if you have any questions, um, email them to either Gina, LJ, or myself, and um, we're going to try and have a conversation that last, last week uh, around those questions. So feel free to ask um, to send those to us. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, thanks for this beautiful day. Thanks for the changing seasons and um, just the freshness that it brings to our lives. We thank you today for your word, Lord, as we seek to understand it and interpret it and live by it. We pray, Father, for the uh, illumination of your Holy Spirit, um, for surely the Spirit is the one who brought this into being, and uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us in Jesus' name, amen, amen. <clears throat> so we're going to start with a little quiz. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to ask, give you, each time I'm going to give you a command from the text we're looking at today, and I want a show of hands on whether this applies today, whether we need to do this today. So, men should pray lifting up holy hands. Who thinks that's true? That men should all pray with their hands raised in the air? All the time? Well, it just says men should pray lifting up holy hands. How many men do that? <laughs> okay. All right. Or one or half, or no, I think Paul's talking about this because that's what they did back then. <laughs> okay, men should pray without anger or disputing. Okay, should, is that true today? Yeah, okay. Um, and that may be in contrast, the holy hands as opposed to anger and disputing, you know, with your fists. Um, but why one and not the other? Women should dress modestly. Does that apply today? Okay, some of you, not everybody. Um, women should not have elaborate hairstyles or wear gold or pearls or expensive clothing. Does that apply today? Come on. No, seriously, no. Okay, good, I can keep my pearls on. Um, Women should have good deeds. Does that apply today? Yep, okay. Women should learn in quietness and full submission. Does that apply today? Hands up if you think that applies today. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Women should not teach or assume authority over a man. Does that apply today? Okay, I'm glad because I can keep going then. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I just wanted you to see this. 
because <laughs> there's multiple commands in there, and we need to think about why aren't we requiring men to pray with their hands raised? Paul says, I want men to pray with their hand, holy hands raised. So why don't we say that, but we do say um, women should dress modestly, whatever that might mean. For them, it seemed to mean no elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive clothing. So you see how hard it is to be consistent with applying scripture. And we, we say yes to some and no to others. And the question is, why? Why do we do that? And so I think what we've been trying to do in this course is to answer why and how we make those decisions. Those, in, those are interpretive decisions of deciding why this command and not that command. Which command is temporal? Which command is culturally um, a, a timed? And which commands are universal? And it's not easy, and we differ on where we come out. So just a quick review. We talked about the incarnational analogy as a way to understand scripture. We're always looking for the marks of the divine author, looking at the arc of the story, and we've started at the beginning of the story and trying to understand each part of the story in light of the larger story. And so we, we've been trying to do that work as we go along. The second is the marks of the human author, and that's navigating between their world and ours because those human authors were limited and bound by their time and their culture. And so we live in a, a world very different from theirs, so we're always trying to navigate between those um, two cultures. And um, there's three options that we have for doing that. One is wooden literalism, where, whoops, sorry, where we just take the text, the text says what it says. Um, so, and if we're gonna do that, it's really hard to be consistent. What I was trying to do with you in that first um, quiz there was to, to show you how hard it is. If you just say, it says what it means, well then, we gotta do what it says but it's not that easy. Um, and if we really believed that, then men would always be praying with their hands raised and women would not be wearing gold and pearls. And there are churches that do that. I can remember going to a church, the first church where we became Christians, and the pastor's wife had been raised in a, um, a church that you didn't even have buttons on the front of your dress. All your buttons had to be on the back. No, um, you know, they took these verses literally, and there was to be no de decoration of your clothing. The second one is cut and paste, and I think we've sort of said that's not going to work. Um, we can't just, that makes us the arbiters of truth, to just say, well, we don't like that, so we'll just say it's irrelevant to us today and throw it out. Um, I, I don't think that's appropriate. And the one we did end up with, with is cultural, cultural transposition, um, where we try to discern what is enculturated in scripture and <clears throat> what was temporary for that point in time and what is universal, and what applies, what's transcultural, what applies across culture. So 
Um, and the reason we're doing this is not just because Gina, LJ, and I want to justify our, <laughs> our positions here. It's because um, our church, Third and Eco, have taken a position of um, valuing egalitarian, uh, egalitarianism in church leadership and ministry. And so what we're seeking to do is to say, well, how did they get there? How did they arrive at that position? And um, so that's sort of been the point of the whole class, is to reflect the position of the church and the denomination and how, how scripture can speak to that. Okay, so um, uh, just a, a quick review of, of Ephesus. Uh, Gina did the Ephesian church last time. Um, Paul spent almost three years in Ephesians. Uh, he poured out his blood, sweat, and tears for that church. It was a tough church plant, we would say today. It was the only place where both Jews and Gentiles opposed him. Um, in Acts chapter 18, he met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth, and then he brings them with him to Ephesus, and they stay there. Apollo comes to Ephesus, and he only knows John's baptism. So Aquila and Priscilla teach him the way of God, um, it says, more accurately. Both of them are teaching him. And he goes off and becomes a powerful teacher and leader. And um, Priscilla stays in Ephesus, assumably, assuming um, Aquila does too. So she's still in Ephesus. Years later, Paul's on his way back to Jerusalem. He hasn't got time to stop in Ephesus, so he calls the elders to come down to the port where he is, and they're all weeping and crying because he's going back to Jerusalem, and they know he's probably going to get arrested. And um, Paul has very stern words for them, frightening words, really. And he warns them that in the times to come, they are going to face external onslaught. There'll be false teachers coming in. He calls them wolves in sheep's clothing to try and lead them astray. But there's also going to be internal onslaught. Some of the Christians within the Ephesian church, some of the elders even, are going to lead them astray. And um, that's in Acts 20. And draw people away from the faith after them. So Paul goes off, he's arrested, um, and he has sent Timothy to Ephesus to pastor this church. And by the time Paul writes these letters to Timothy, the church is in disarray. Ex what Paul has said what happened is exactly what's happened. There's heretics within and heretics without, and the church is in crisis. And so I think um, what we can see is what Paul's teaching Timothy to do is, is he's not setting normative uh, structures for all time, for all churches everywhere. He's writing to Timothy and telling him how to rein this back in and how to get control. And it, really what he's suggesting, I think, is a in many ways is a remedial model to get the church back on track. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's particular to the situation that's happening at Ephesus. So um, 
gosh, those don't read very well, do they? I couldn't get rid of the color in the background. Sometimes PowerPoint has a mind of its own. But I did want, is that better? Not very. I did want to give you a sense of, um, I took all the heresies that Paul mentions. They're scattered all throughout the letter. And when you put them all together, I think it helps us to understand how bad things were there. So we'll just start and read across. Uh, he said, the false teachers are teaching false doctrine. They're devoted to myths and endless genealogies. They provoke, promote controversies and don't advance God's work. They want to be teachers of the law, but do not know what they're talking about or what so, they so confidently affirm. They have rejected the faith and a good conscience. They're deceived by evil spirits and demons. There are young widows who are idle and talk nonsense. They're busybody teachers. They devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. They're liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage. They require abstinence from foods. They talk irreverent and silly myths. They engage in godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge that some profess, but they have left the faith. Um, they say the resurrection has already happened and have destroyed the faith of some. Some follow those, I love this, who say what their itching ears want them to hear. So, you know, there's this appeal, like their ears are just itching. They don't want the truth. They want to hear what they want to hear. Um... They, some have turned away to follow Satan with an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that lead to envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people. Some think godliness is a means to financial gain, but they have wandered from the faith. So you just take all those together and you realize this is a church in crisis. And some of these false teachers are from outside coming in and pilfering the flock, and others are actually from within. Um, and I think to just have a sense of, of how bad this was, you know, if we described our church that way, it would be pretty depressing and pretty scary. This is what's happening to the church in Ephesus. Gina also mentioned that Ephesus is a, was the site of the cult of Artemis, the goddess Artemis. Um, her temple there was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was a fertility cult. Um, they had a huge temple there, and the priests were all women. Um, and they favored freedom of, um, from marriage. Um, they disdained marriage and childbearing, but they engaged in sexual freedom and license. So... You know, you've got this going on at the same time, and some of these women probably became Christians and sort of brought some of this stuff into the church with them. You also have, um, and we, we've mentioned this before, but just a reminder, education for women. Um, remember, women married young. They married older men. They were unlikely to be literate. They were not trained in rhetoric or public speaking like the men were. They also were drawn to the church. Um, they were able to participate in ways that they wouldn't have been able to in participate in their culture. So women were drawn to the church, um, especially these widows who found care in the church. 
remember with um, Naomi and Ruth, widows were marginalized in, in that culture. They were seen to have nothing productive to offer. And in the church, they found people to care for them. Um, and so Paul's main concern here is how Timothy is to handle these false teachers, and many of them were women, were influenced by women, or many of the false teachers influenced women, and some of those women were then going around teaching this false doctrine. Um, and Paul's counterbalance, if you read through First and Second Timothy, he'll, he'll talk about the false teachers, and then he'll always encourage Timothy, teach the faith, teach the doctrines, teach what you learn from me, teach what you learn from your grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice. So it's teaching right doctrine, and, he said, and then he goes on at great length to what it looks like to live a godly life, that it's not just right doctrine, it's right living as well. So both are, are stressed over and over by Paul to Timothy. Okay, so with that, let's read um, these verses. I just put in the first one, uh, first couple of verses, um, just as a bit of context. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. And I think the next verse is key to understanding what Paul is doing that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Um, Paul wasn't interested in a revolution. He wanted to be able, the church to be a peaceful, quiet lives, but with godliness and holiness. So both sides there. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness and propriety. Okay, so um, these are hard, <laughs> hard, uh, hard verses, and... Um, I'm only attempting to give you a plausible alternative um, translation to what many have taken literally to say uh, women should never teach or have authority over a man. Um, so first of all, let's, let's look at some helps for interpreting this. Let's remember what Paul said about the men who were false teachers. He said... Um, I've handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. So lest we think Paul's being a little harsh on the women, we're not being handed over to Satan. <laughs> I mean, that's what he's doing with these males. Um, he's 
you know, literally, and he did that with Demas, too. And he's actually saying, Satan, have, have at with them so that they learn the truth. So um, I think it's important that we understand that context. So um, let's look at the first one. This is the only command, the only imperative verb in this whole section. Um, a woman should learn. So that's radical at that time. The women should learn. The women should not just be sitting home looking after the babies. The women should learn. Paul's commanding that. He wants women to be taught, to be educated in the gospel, to understand the truths of the gospel so that then they can become teachers. Um, they are to do it quietly and in submission, um, which would be very typical for uh, a rabbi teaching his followers or students. The, the rabbis were the ones who had the knowledge. The students actually sat often at their feet in, in acknowledgement of their need, their humility and their submission to the teacher to um, impart that knowledge to them. So this is not anything outstanding or, or anything. It's just typical how people would learn. Remember Mary, we looked at her sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning, and they would all be sitting there, you know, with their ears wide open, <laughs> listening for the words that this rabbi was imparting. And he's saying women should be doing the same thing. They should be learning. They can be learning quietness and submission, recognizing that they too can be qualified students. So he's encouraging the women to become disciples. Um, and I think we can't miss the power of that in that culture. That's the real radical part here. Um, okay. And, and it also, I think, reflects his... Uh, Paul's desire for there to be peace and peacefulness. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a, uh, and, and maybe this is why he says it, maybe this is what was happening. Women were um, talking out a turn and um, challenging, and no, you can learn quietly and submissive, but you learn. Um, then he says, I do not permit. Um, and the big question here is, is what he's, follows, is this a temporary uh, injunction or a universal injunction? And I haven't got time to go into all the details, and I'm not sure I totally understand it anyways. But based on grammar and syntax, when this phrase in the Greek is used, it's a temporary injunction. It's, there's other ways to say um, in the Greek, uh, to phrase a universal injunction, and he's not doing this here. So it really says, it, it's I do not permit, I am not permitting. It's not a permanent, it's, it's for right now, at this time, you have a crisis to deal with, here's what you need to do. Um, and then we go to, um, to teach or have, okay, we've got universal. Now we go to the I do not permit a, a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. Um, some people have broken these up 
you're not allowed to teach, and you're not allowed to assume authority. Paul's really talking about one idea here. The, again, the way the Greek is, it's teach and have authority. Almost like we say hit and run or eat and run. It's two ideas that are joined together um, uh, as one. It's a single prohibition. So um, it's teaching with assumed authority. So uh, the word for authority in Greek this is the only place in the Bible this word is used. If Paul had wanted to say, I don't want a woman to exercise authority at any time over um, a man to teach and ha have authority, he would have used a much more common word. This word has a very negative um, connotation to it. And so what it is, is it's teaching with assumed authority it's a usurping authority. It's not recognized authority. Um, it's abusing your authority. So it, it's not doing what I'm doing now. I, um, I have authority to be teaching what I'm teaching today. I'm not assuming that authority. I'm not usurping authority. Um, and so it's important that what he's talking about is a negative, abusive use of authority. Not, um, not a recognized authority. Um, it, it's, um, think of Priscilla, who was there. Priscilla was, would still be teaching, but she had the recognized authority that Paul had given her with her husband to teach. And so there's obviously women in this congregation who are taking it upon themselves to assume authority that the church has not recognized, and, and they're teaching. Um, remember, the churches were small house churches. So you can see how easily this would happen. It's harder in a church like ours that's more institutionalized. But in those days, it would just be small gatherings in homes, and it would be easy for anybody to take over and assume authority. And all Paul's doing is, is saying, um, no, anybody really teaching has to have a, a, an authority that's recognized within the group or the church. But um, women especially seem to be the culprits of this. And what, so what he's saying is um, that the, he's restricting women from teaching who have a, assumed authority, but not women like Priscilla, who would have had a, a recognized authority. Um, and I think there's also an element, too. Paul was always very conscious of how outsiders would view the church. And in that culture, it would be inappropriate for a woman to assume authority to teach men um, that wasn't recognized. I think you know, you sort of have this two-edged sword where women were drawn um, because they were able to teach, but they had to do it appropriately and with the recognized authority because outsiders were always watching. We saw that in Corinthians, too. But Paul always had this sense that um, within the culture, we don't want to be an offense. Again, we're not starting a revolution we do things in a way that subverts culture, but we don't just throw off all the cultural norms, whether they're sexual or propriety in worship and in dress and things like that. 
Okay, so there's Paul then goes on to give two reasons for the prohibition. The first one is an issue of respect. He says Adam was formed first. Now, um, one of the things that helps to know is uh, Paul talked about, um, let me just get the quote again. We'll go back. Oh, I can't go all the way back there. One of the teachings was uh, people who are promoting, and it would be women as well as men, um, what, what is falsely called knowledge. And that word for knowledge in the Greek is gnosis. And at that time, there was a, a sect. It, it was in its early iteration, but um, they were called the Gnostics, which is the same word, gnosis. And they had... They profess to have this secret knowledge. And um, their early, the early Gnostic teaching, here's, here's some of the things they were saying. Eve preceded Adam and gave him life. She was not deceived, but wisely ate the fruit that imparted secret knowledge. That's why it would have been attractive to women, um, and especially widows. Uh, we don't need men anymore hey, we're the ones in control. We were formed first. We have the knowledge. We're imparting that knowledge to the man. And I think all Paul's doing here is refuting that. No, <laughs> that's not true. Remember what he said about people teaching the law, the Old Testament, not really knowing what they're talking about? Here's, here's the example of that. That's not true, what, what they're saying. He's saying Adam was formed first. And remember when we talked about um, uh, the, in, in second, 1 Corinthians, we talked about Adam being the head as being the source. And so this is just a reminder. It, there's no hierarchy here, and we saw that in Genesis too. There was no sense of hierarchy in Adam being formed first. Um, and Paul balanced that in, in Corinthians with reminding them that the man is not independent of the woman, and the woman is not independent of man. Um, but Adam was formed first, and so um, it's a matter of respect when, when, because Adam was, or the man is the source, the women should respect um, the man and not assume and domineer and abuse authority over them. I, I think that's really all he's saying. Um, and so um, for women to abuse that authority was disrespectful to men. And the women at Ephesus who were doing that needed um, this correction that, so that they would submit respectfully to the teaching that they needed. They needed to understand the gospel. And they needed their teaching to be corrected. And so I think that's all he's saying there. Um, and um, the second is because of the deception of false teachers. That, and, and this is where he then goes on to make an analogy with the false teaching with Eve. And um, I think it's, uh, I mean, that's what scripture said. When um, God confronts Eve, she, she said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That's exactly what happens. She was deceived. She ate. But the deception that she fell for 
was that God's word was not true. And that's the important part. She was deceived into doubting God's goodness, into doubting the truth of God's word, that when you eat, you will die, and, it, and assumed authority for herself and took the fruit and ate, and the consequences were world-changing. Um, and so I think he, what he's doing is drawing an analogy. You need to realize the false teaching is a de deception. In the same way the deception that Eve fell for brought chaos and havoc into the world, these false teachers, these women that, and, that are falling for the false teachers and being deceived, that is an, will be the entrance to the death of the church. And so I, he's just highlighting how serious this is. And um, it, he, he's making this analogy. Eve's deception illustrates the seriousness and the danger of deception in Ephesus. And when we go back and look at all those deceptions and the, and the resulting um, havoc that it was wreaking in the church, people... Uh, Paul says they've gone away to follow Satan, they've lost their faith, they're dividing the church. Um, it's destroying the church at Ephesus. And so it needs to be dealt with. Um, I think what's important to note is um, Paul uses that same example of Eve as being deceived about men in 2 Corinthians. He says, 2 Corinthians 11, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Eve is the prototype, not just for women, but for all people who are being deceived by false doctrine because of the danger of it. It leads to death and, and um, division in the church. He's not saying anything about women being naturally somehow prone to deception. And um, that is taught sometimes, that women are more prone to deception, so we need men to be the teachers to protect us. I don't think he's saying that. Um, and I don't think he's saying that using this, people use this, they say, Subordination is grounded in creation because Paul refers to creation and Adam being formed first. The important thing is that Adam was formed first, but Eve was formed too. Um, and um, if we're going to say that the creation order is the basis for subordination in male-female relationships, then, then we need to apply it across the board, not just in homes, in church, but in government, in, in society, in business. Um, you know, if, if it's true, it's true. But if it's not, then um, I think understanding it this way helps us see that there is a plausible way to understand it. And then the last thing I just want to mention um, is saved through childbearing. Well, we know it can't mean that having babies is, is your way to salvation. <laughs> I mean, we know that. That's totally contrary to everything Scripture says. And it means that if you don't have kids, too bad. <laughs> so we know that's not what it means. Um, and, and I think this is, the, this is the beautiful counterbalance to what Paul has said 
about Eve being the vehicle for sin to enter the world, Eve is also the vehicle for the hope of the world. Because remember after, in Genesis 3, when God curses the serpent and he says that the seed of the woman will crush his head. That's, um, she will be the vehicle, the woman, for the birth of the Savior. This is, um, there actually is a, an article on that, saved through the childbearing or the childbirth. So um, women are saved, are, are saved through the birth of Christ, but also they are the vehicle of hope for the world as well. So um, I, I think what Paul's doing is he's affirming women. He's affirming that they are partners uh, with men. They're formed by God. They are to learn, which says if they are to learn, they are capable of then becoming teachers. Because remember, the whole goal of being a disciple is to learn so then you can then go and disciple others. So um, uh, teaching is really important, that, but they have to learn the truth of the gospel first, which is true for all of us. We all have to learn the gospel before we can teach it. Um, and then finally, they're to hold fast to the gospel in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So instead of being instruments of death, women are called to be instruments of life in the church and in the world. And at that time and in that place and in that crisis of the church, it meant that they needed time to learn. They didn't have the authority that they could just assume to be teachers. Maybe if they'd been priests in the cult of Artemis, they thought, well, I could do this. No, 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 no. You don't know the gospel. You have to learn it. And that's true about men, too. Paul says with elders, don't make a young man an elder lest he get puffed up and be open to deception and lead the church astray. So, you know, the warning about deception is, is there for all, all of us. Um, okay, so I'm going to stop, and LJ's just going to come and do elders and deacons, and then I'll just wrap it up. <laughs> so is this mic on? Yes. So just a couple of things, too, to remind you um, that Nan mentioned that there were some articles in the back. You know, there's only so much that we can cover here in an hour, and so I would really encourage you. We've not given you a big textbook to look at, just to take some of those articles there. Some of the articles are on the Ephesians passage that Gina worked on last week, as well as some of the things that we're um, looking at today. But also there's some um, debunking of complementarianism. There's an article on that. I think that would be helpful for you to take. So please grab those. Okay. Okay, which way is this thing? Pointed at, yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay, so looking at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, this is the NASB. I'm going to read it to you. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is, fine, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, temper, no, temperate prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. 
He must be one that manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not an and not a new convert. This is a small print. I am sorry. It would be easier if I just turn this way. And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when we've looked at this text in the past and there was a reason why I picked it out of the NASB, it, it looks like it is being written specifically to men, that men are the only ones that are supposed to be elders in the, in the church. And um, we're going to unpack that a little bit and see it in a different light. So it's in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that we see these exhortations about um, overseers, deacons, elders. So the question is, who can be an overseer? So as we look at the text, it is a trustworthy statement, if any man, and I highlighted man, or at least bolded it, because the Greek does not say man. It's an indefinite pronoun, meaning anyone, um, a gender-neutral term. But somehow, in the translation, over, year, over the years, man was put in there. And then the next section goes, aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work, he, and I bolded he. There is no he or male pronoun here in the Greek. So without the additions, it would read this. It is a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work desires to do. So you see why they would try to put something in there to make it make sense. Let's look at another translation. The Common English Bible says, it is true that anyone who desires to be a church official wants to be something worthwhile. That's why officials must have a good reputation and be faithful in marriage. They must be self-controlled, sensible, well-behaved, friendly to strangers, and able to teach. They must not be heavy drinkers or troublemakers. Instead, they must be kind and gentle and not love money. Church officials must be in control of their own families, and they must see that their children are obedient and always respectful. If they don't know how to control their own families, how can they look after God's people? They must not be new followers of the Lord. If they are, they might become proud and be doomed along with the devil. Finally, they must be well-respected by people who are not followers." then they won't be trapped or disgraced by the devil. So here you see what we've done is we've taken out the, um, the maleness that was added in, and we're looking at it more as a without masculine pronouns, which was not what it was intended to be to begin with. And it reads much differently. But oftentimes when we look at Scripture and we look at, I don't know how your Bible categorizes things, but it, in mine it says qualifications for leadership. And, um, but and they do say, if you look down, it may say in your little footnotes that he was added or him was added. But I think this translation is a much better read for what was trying to be said in that particular passage. So it also talks about husband of one wife or man of one woman. 
So Paul is using an idiom here. He cannot abstract the word man from the idiom and make it a separate requirement for, le for leadership. The idiom is Paul's way of excluding polygamy, polygamy and marital unfaithfulness. These were not issues for women. It does not exclude women who are part of the anyone who can inspire to leadership any more than it excludes a single man. So the Greek literally says, man of one woman. And it was understood that this was an idiom. Um, some insist on extracting one word, namely man, and arbitrarily isolating it from its context as a new requirement that every overseer be a man. And that would be similar just like saying, it, it, like talking about a hit and run. It's a felony for a hit and run. It's also a felony for a run. No, it's a felony for a hit and run. So nevertheless, um, some insist that this passage excludes women, um, reading a double meaning into this idiomatic phrase. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to too much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clever conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. In some translations, you would see that written as wives, and the NIV, the 1984 version, had it listed as wives as well. But I think it's quite possible that what is happening here is instructions are being given to both men, male elders, as well as women elders. So who can be a deacon? Um, women. Greek has one word, no, there, added by other translations, like their wives in that 1984 NIV translation. Paul speaking to women who are deacons, like Junia. Uh, requirements for both men and women are ma uh, maturity of faith, people of character, and respect in, um, in and beyond the church. To be a deacon was to have authority in the church. I think this summarizes um, kind of what we've been looking at, and it's a quote. And I'm going to end with this, and then I'm going to have um, Nan come back up and tie everything all together in a lovely little bow. So, um, <laughs> but this quote that I grabbed um, from one of the commentators says, um, does Paul require that all overseers be men? Actually, Paul encourages every believer to aspire to be an overseer. Here is a trustworthy saying, anyone who aspires to be an overseer desi desires a noble task. In Greek, anyone is, gender, um, is a gender-inclusive word, implying an open door to women as well as men. Would Paul encourage women to desire an office that is forbidden to them? Paul makes it clear that anyone is in the continuing subject by reiterating anyone in verse 5 and identifying anyone as the subject of a parallel list for overseer qualifications in Titus 1.6. Contrary to most translators, there is not a single masculine pronoun in, um, in any of the church leader qualifications.
Okay, Eric, can you bring my thing back on? Um, so this is kind of a counterbalance. If, if what LJ is saying is true, then the women teaching um, with assumed authority would, um, <coughs> would there would be a contradiction here. Wait, women can be elders and deacons, but women can't teach with authority, but elders are supposed to teach. So, um, you know, you, you can't have it both ways. So I think that, that if, if what we're proposing here is true about elders and deacons, then um, what Paul's saying has a, a very specific application to a specific thing that's happening, as, as I've already outlined. Um, I think what this also shows is how messy translation is. <laughs> I think what we have is this sort of um, naive view of Bible translators, and they're just translating the words. And um, it, it, it just doesn't work that way. Translation is very messy, very challenging, and the translators bring their own bias to it. So what, what happens when they translate their wives? That's translators who've taken a position that women can't be deacons, so it has to mean their wives. It can't mean women. And, and th those are sometimes... Um, sometimes we're self-aware of them, and sometimes we're not. I appreciated what Scott said last week. We all have our blind spots. And those play into the task of translation. And um, so I, I think it's just a good reminder of why it's important to read several versions of Scripture um, and remember the headings <laughs> were added much later by the translators. Um, so I just want to... Um, just a few concluding thoughts here. Sorry, I have to zip through here. There, okay. Um, so this is a challenging text. And I think what our survey at the beginning showed is that it's hard to be consistent in how you um, translate scripture. But I think there are several options for interpreting it. One was to pay attention to the story. And we've We've done that in previous weeks by looking at how did Jesus interact with women? How did Paul interact with women? And those are what guide us then in how we understand what comes later, what Paul actually said and wrote. And, um, and, and so I think it's really important. Do we take this scripture in 1 Timothy and make that the controlling scripture and reinterpret everything that came before in light of that? Or do we look at the story as it unfolds and then interpret 1 Timothy in light of the story? And I think that's what we've tried to do. And I think that's a plausible um, strategy. And then we pay attention, um, be aware of our interpretive strategy. If we're going to do wooden literalism, we always have problems with consistency. I would say it doesn't matter what you do, you have problems with consistency, but I think for me, I, I can be more consistent um, with the um, cultural transposition. So um, if we're going to do wooden literalism, then we, we are forced to say uh, if women are not allowed to teach or have authority over men, what about all men praying with their hands up? 
no pearls, gold, or expensive clothes for women. Single men and women cannot be elders because the el elder has to be the husband of one wife, so no, no single men. Um, then we have to establish orders of widows. This is something Paul talks about latest, later in 1 Timothy. Any widows 60 or over, the church takes care of them if they have no family. Any widows younger than that would be 59 and under, have to get married again because of their sensual desires and their idleness. They need to be busy. <laughs> so are we going to do that? I mean, who wants to pass a rule that anybody who's a widow under, um, under 59 has got to get remarried again? <laughs> Good luck with that one. <laughs> so, but it, you see what we mean about um, consistency. And then cut and paste, I think we've kind of eliminated that one. Um, and then cultural transposition. Um, we have to discern what is enculturated and temporary and what is universal and transcultural. And I think that's what we've tried to do, uh, made, make a plausible case for interpreting what Paul says in 1 Timothy um, as temporal and um, specific to that situation in Ephesus at, the t at that time. So it's three minutes. Any questions, thoughts? Alan. Timothy, the birth order, uh, or the creation order, yeah. and then the, the childbearing, it, it goes straight to the, uh, straight to the um, issue of when God banished the, husband, the, the man and woman, Adam and Eve, from the garden. Mm -hmm. He said to Eve, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and then your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Those are the two things he said to the woman, and they're not temporary. I'm not trying to make an argument or a case. I'm simply wondering that that can't be an accident. Well, again, you're going back to the fall and making that normative. The fall is not normative. The fall is the, the mess up from um, what we live with uh, as a result of the fall. In Christ, we're being redeemed from the curse. And so Christ is restoring the the relationships between male and female that the fall destroyed and and it what i love about ephesians is what paul's doing there is he talks about how christ is bringing all things together under his headship so he uses the example of jew and gentile that the class or race or and then he, he does husbands and wife too, gender differences, that in Christ, those all, it's not that we become all the same, but they don't separate us anymore. And we're brought to a new level of work and partnership in Christ that, uh, that before was impossible because of the impact of the fall. So don't go back to the fall to look for what's normative. Go back to creation, and it all got ruined, but now Christ is redeeming us from the fall. He's rolling back the effect of the curse, and that plays out in male-female relationships. Patriarchy was a result of the fall. It's not what God intended from the beginning. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And the 
toil and, and the labor and the weeds and all of that is there. Nobody says that's permanent. Nobody says you can't use pesticides, you can't use, you can't use um, uh, GMOs. Well, maybe some people do, but, but, <laughs> but, but nobody says because of that, that's permanent. But for some reason, we do for the gender. Hmm. Was there another question or comment? I thought somebody else had their hand up. Yeah. You know, the, the work for, you know, Adam's curse was that work, uh, you know, the ground would be cursed mm -hmm. and work is hard. Mm -hmm. Work is still hard. Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't get, you know, I, I don't, that's one question I've had for many years about that, where, you know, where do we see the redemption in Christ in terms of the work of humankind? Yeah, great question, Boyd. <laughs> everywhere, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think too. I'm not sure I agree yeah. with that. <laughs> well, I, here, here's an. Well, I mean, two thirds of the world is still drastic. Well, one third of the world is still drastically poor. But the poor doesn't. But the status of the poor doesn't really address the issue of the difficulty of work. Okay, so if it's not been removed, how does that then inform our understanding of what you just taught? Um, well, it's not been removed. We still have the challenges. We still live in the broken, fallen world. We're still the subject to deception. And, um, and, and so it's just that constant awareness um, that, you know, the goal, here's, the goal is, is restored mutual partnership. But the reality is that's hard. It's hard work because the world is so broken and fallen. Yeah. And, and it, with regard to work, I think as believers, we have a different view of work. Yeah. That our work is uh, valued and has meaning because of our relationship with Christ. And that we are actually participating, our work is participating in the the work of the kingdom so it has a depth and meaning it's sti we're still not there and we won't be there till the new heaven and the new earth but the kingdom has already come 
just not in its fullness. And we get glimpses of that, but it's not in its fullness. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, just looking at our own country, you can look at Virginia and kind of the changes, but uh, as a new country, we were a very agrarian society. Everybody was working, trying to develop. Then we kind of moved into the manufacturing industrial, mm -hmm. and now the country itself is moving more to a service-based where you know, the work may be hard, but you're not out there with your hands in the dirt. You're not out there in the supply line. You're at a desk doing computer work or something. So kind of adding to that, like mm -hmm. just looking at our own country, the, mm -hmm. the hard, the arc of labor and work are kind of changing, so. Mm -hmm. For some, yeah. <laughs> For some, yeah, totally. <laughs> All right, um, go in peace, and we'll see you next week. Oh, Boyd's going to teach next week. Um, I think, do you want to say something quick? Um, and um, so uh, the, the title next week will be The Patriarchy Strikes Back. Um, you have, it's a sort of imagine what we've been looking at now are sort of like spring crocuses uh, that are pointing their heads up above the snow and there's hope and there's aspirations and these things are, or daffodils and all of a sudden you're going to see somebody go through with a weed whacker. And, and take them all down. And so the question we're going to answer about the post-apostolic period in the patristic period is if what Nan says is true and what LJ and what, and, and what Gina have said is true, what happens? Because we're about to head into 1,800 years of patriarchy. What happens? And that's the answer. That's what we're going to try and answer next week. All in one hour. See you then. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>